The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. It's just a note to say that if you're hearing this, then you are not currently on our patron programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show podcast, you will need to become a patron of the show via the show's homepage at thetudortravelshow.podbean.com. There you will find information relating to various different levels of sponsorship with different perks associated with each. But access to all the usual shows of my podcast in their entirety is included in the entry level, which is just $1 a month. We don't run ads on the podcast, so it is made entirely possible by the support of our patrons. So if you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider becoming one. Now I felt my pulse quickened this week because as I was driving back from Hampton Court Palace, I passed a whole carpet of snowdrops. And snowdrops for me can only mean one thing, that is the end or the the beginning of the end of winter here in the Northern Hemisphere and that we have a whole season of Tudor road tripping ahead of us. The question is, where are you looking to go? I hope the Tudor History and Travel Show has been providing you with some inspiration over the winter months and there are certainly plenty more places for us to see ahead. In fact, I have a full and burgeoning schedule And I'm looking forward, of course, to bringing those to you. Now, there's not too much housekeeping to go over today. Um, I have had my head down, uh, working, beavering away on creating the membership, uh, which is coming together very, very nicely. I'm hoping to do a uh, soft launch uh, with the membership to a select group of people, hopefully later on in February. And if you are interested in the membership, and I know I haven't released any details yet, but it's got all my best work in there, then you can register your interest. And I will include a link in the description associated with this podcast. At this stage, it is purely registering an interest and we'll make sure you are among the first to hear when the membership goes live and maybe even a chance to be amongst that initial launch group who will be getting the best ever deal on the membership uh, in return for hopefully helping me iron out 
any little wrinkles <laughs> that are still there. Anyway, I'm really, really excited about that. It's been a huge project and I've been working on it for months and I'm really looking now forward to bringing this to you. Now we can get straight on with today's the wider show. World. Now there is, of course, an introduction and you might want to bear in mind that when I recorded this, this was last year and since uh, I recorded this, my virtual summit, 500 Years of Anne Boleyn, has already gone live. So my mention of Dermot McCulloch and my forthcoming summit is in fact a little bit out of date. But nevertheless, the inspiration to visit certainly came from Professor McCulloch when I interviewed him about a year ago about, of course, the relationship between Anne Boleyn and Thomas Cromwell. And as you will hear, it was Dermot who urged me to come and investigate the long-lost palace. Well, in fact, it's not quite lost, which is the wonderful thing about it. Although the remains of the palace are now part of a school, so you, it's not a, a heritage destination that is open to the public, you can still get to visit it via the Friends of the Old Palace. And in fact, our two guides today are part of the Friends and they will introduce both the Friends Society and the palace. So I think I should hand over to the two ladies in question and introduce you to the long-lost palace at Croydon. Hello and welcome dear listeners to this current episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. Now today I have travelled from the heart of England, my home in the Cotswolds, to the south of London and I have come to Croydon. Now I'm here because earlier this year I was interviewing Professor Dermot McCulloch for my forthcoming virtual summit and we got talking about some of the magnificent Tudor places uh, in and around London and Dermot said to me, Sarah, have you been to Croydon Palace? Croydon Palace, I said. I was ashamed to admit I hadn't really even heard of it, but of course that made me put it on my map. And so I have made this pilgrimage today to Croydon Palace and I am currently here with two ladies who are part of the Friends of the Old Palace. Uh, Mary Moore. Hello, Mary. Welcome. Hello, Sarah. Welcome. Glad well, you're here. Thank you for coming along today and being part one of our two guides. And also Janice. Janice Barter. Hello. Hello. You're very welcome. Oh, well, thank you, ladies, for uh, inviting us into the heart of what was, I guess, a magnificent building during the Tudor period. Now, you're going to tell us all about its history in a moment. But before we do that, perhaps, Mary, you could tell us a little bit about the Friends. What are the Friends? What do they do? Well, the Friends were a group founded in 1965, and our aim is to increase knowledge of the palace and also to raise funds, not for the school aspect, but for the buildings aspect, to preserve the historical aspects of it. And we've got about 300 members all over the world, Australia, Canada, um, we've got about 20 who are more active here and run, we run tours of the palace three times a year during the school holidays. And I think they're quite popular because I looked at those online and they were, they they are were very booked popular. up. I thought I'm going to have to actually go and say, can I get a private dog? <laughs> no, this is wonderful. So you mentioned actually, it is worthwhile saying that today the palace is a school. Absolutely, school so for girls. It's a school for girls. So um, I guess that's why you have to moderate the tours and do them on, a, you, you know, it's not open to the public no, because this is no. a working school basically. Yes, yes, and as we go around you'll see aspects which prove to you it is very much a working school. Okay, yeah, and absolutely, because 
dear listeners, we're going to be taking some photos and some bits of video as we go around. And no doubt, as usual, I will put together a show notes page so that you can refer to that page as we're walking around and talking about some of the features that you'll then be able to see in the blog. So do look out for a description, uh, which I will append in the description associated with this podcast. Now, Mary, you mentioned that people join from all over the world. So how can people find out more about you, support you, and perhaps even book to come on a tour with you? We've got a website, www.friendsofoldpalace.org. We send out a yearly newsletter to our members. You have to, I'm afraid you have to pay to join. Um, You can book online. Um, It's my email, marybob1 at hotmail.com or you can phone, all the details are on the website. That's fantastic. And what is the membership, just for those people who might be interested? It's in 30 pounds for life membership. For life? For life, well, yes. Well, that's a bargain, that's what I say. Excellent, so ladies and gentlemen, again, I'll make sure that I put uh, a link in the description below. Okay, well, I think we should start talking about the history of this place. So Janice, can you tell us about the early origins of the palace and, and who was it a palace for? Thank you. We are very welcome. This is, there's evidence here of an estate, a manor, belonging to the Archbishops of Canterbury, going back to Saxon times, to the 9th century. It's in Doomsday Book, when it belonged to Lamfranc. And so we have evidence of a long history of a, of a, a manor house and an estate belonging to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Why was it here? It's in a lovely location by the Great North Wood, very leafy, lots of water, three rivers, lots of fish. It's an ideal spot. It comes into its own as the home for the Archbishops of Canterbury when Lambeth gets up and running in the 12th century, because then it's a day's ride from the disease, the dirt, the intrigue of London. And so it becomes a sort of summer palace for the Archbishops of Canterbury. So Janice, I'm just going to interrupt you there because I'm very well aware that the Archbishops of Canterbury had a series of palaces that connected uh, Lambeth to Canterbury. I guess this must have been one of them en route. It certainly was. From Lambeth you would come here to Croydon, then you would go to Oxford, you would go to Rootham, later you would go to Knoll, then there would be Maidstone, Charing, Canterbury. Day's ride, a nice comfortable journey for the archbishops and their entourage to get to the mother church. Perfect. So ideal. Perfect. But but you did say this was this particularly the summer palace. So why did it stand out from all of those other places? I think there's evidence that the archbishops certainly, as you get later into the medieval and Shooter period, spent a fair bit of the summers here. Now I think it was a very pleasant spot. Croydon means the Valley of the Crocuses. I had no idea. It was, so it was a a pleasant, beautiful, as it still is, ladies and gentlemen, a very pleasant spot. You have the great north wood around you, so you've got hunting. In the Tudor times, there will be horse racing at Duppas Hill, which is a local landmark, which is something which Elizabeth I loved to come and enjoy. And did she stay here, by the way? She stayed here an awful lot. Okay. Well, maybe we could come back to that when we dive into the building. So thank you for just teasing us a little bit there with the royal visitors. So you've got horse racing, you've got the hunting, Mm. you've got rivers. So a a goodly air, maybe, the Tudors might say. A very goodly air. Unfortunately, it wasn't going to last. Henry VIII always he disliked it. He was about the only ruler that I can, in that period who actually disliked coming here because he said it was unhealthy. 
he didn't like it. Now, actually, as the years went by, he may well have been proved right, because as Croydon developed at the top of the hill, all the nasty waters and it came ah. running down the hill towards us. Yeah. And remember that wood? Lots of charcoal burning, lots of smoke. Always a problem. One of the Elizabethan archbishops actually took a charcoal burner to court, um, basically for covering the place in smoke. So as the years went by, it became increasingly difficult to make it a pleasant palace. By 1780, the archbishops had had enough and they moved out to Addington Palace and the place was left to become virtually derelict. Different parts of it were sold off for different purposes. There was a ragged school, there was lots of bleaching, remember the water, lots of bleaching, lots of calico printing, a factory, little, little factories. Some of the posh rooms were actually rented out to local JPs and vicars, but generally the, it did fall into disrepair. And quite frankly, by the second half of the 19th century, it was derelict. I see. And so we're maybe coming sort of to the end of the story at the beginning, but it actually is quite useful, I think, to have the context and to be, see, to be able to see the whole picture before we go inside mm. and start kind of looking at some of, of what remains of the palace. So, so it became derelict. Then what happened? Then what it? happened is that one of the Oxford movement, the young Duke of Newcastle, um, who was a great philanthropist, bought it. And he gave it to a new order of Anglican teaching sisters, the Sisters of the Church, uh, led by Mother Emily Akebourne, a fascinating group of people. And he gave it to them to turn into a school. They were very interested in education. Well, they took one look at it, took a deep breath and said, oh no, it was such a challenge, but they were not ladies to give up. And they changed their minds, they took it on. Within a couple of weeks, they're organizing cake sales, donkey rides, fairs to raise money. They started a school and they lit there were two rooms that they could actually live in mm -hmm. at the time and they literally ran a school and renovated it room by room and it is their school that we have become part of uh, over the years as the school has developed to, to, to become the old palace school of John Whitgift. Well thank goodness for that. You know I think we were talking before we started recording I think a lot of people are like me. They're like, Croydon Palace? Is that what you find that most people- Absolutely, no one's heard of it. I wonder why that is, do you think? I don't think anyone associates Croydon with having a palace. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's also quite hidden down here at the bottom of the hill with the main part of Croydon developing the top of the hill. There used to be lots of trees around it as well in the olden days. So again, it would have been quite hidden, I think, as well, which it still is to some extent. So, Because today it's surrounded by suburbia. So it's, it's, we don't still have the open fields and the, the clear woodland, etc. So it is very much part of a suburb of South London. Is that how you'd call Croydon? I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, and of course it's not open to the public. So I guess that's another reason why um, it's perhaps not got the profile that it absolutely deserves. Why do you think Dermot McCulloch loves this place so much? What would you say? I think from the, from the day I started working here, I, I taught history here for over for 10 years, um, I think I was overwhelmed by the sheer presence, the, the sheer historical presence of the place, the beauty of the place. Um, it does feel like living history. May I say as well, it's a joy to have the children in the school because it makes it alive. Mm. As well as being a wonderful historic building, it is also a working, living, breathing building. And it's that combination that I find quite exciting. 
Yeah, and of course, you know, that's what it was meant to be. Yes. So it still has that life about it. Now, those folk who are listening may notice a distinct lack of sounds of children around, and that's because it's the summer holidays at the moment that we're recording, so uh, we, we have the place to ourselves. Now, we're going to go inside soon and start to explore the Tudor remains of the building. Um, but from the outside, maybe you could describe to us, because there's two courtyards, I think, isn't there, where you can get some really lovely outdoor views of the palace. Um, we are starting in the north courtyard. So can you just explain and describe what we can see? In the north courtyard, you can actually see virtually the whole history of the palace because you have in front of you an entrance hall to the banqueting hall, which dates back to the 1390s, with a lovely change in land level to show you how that's altered. Then you have the 15th century banqueting hall, again in front of you, linked up with some interesting buildings, possibly Tudor, before you come around to seeing um, a chapel, the building of chapel, which was built in 1450s, 1460s, but altered and extended in the Tudor period. And that chapel again is quite interesting because the wall outside it, as well as the chapel wall itself, has got some of the earliest brickwork in England to have a look at. Oh wow, well I can't wait to see that. So we're going from the 1390s yes. through to the Tudor period, basically. So 150, 200 years or so of, of architecture on view. That's fantastic. Now, do remind me, do we have, I think I recall seeing online a kind of a mid 18th century sketch of what was left of the palace buildings. Do we know what the original palace building looked like? How many ranges there were, how many courtyards there were, etc. I think this is very difficult. We have a number of, of sketches and pictures and it is actually quite difficult to piece together the information. And we are certainly working on this room by room, but to get the overall picture, I think, is a challenge. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, so, um, so there's no, as far as you know, no original kind of floor plan drawing, um, which is very common, actually, I have to say, particularly of sort of the very early buildings. Yeah. Sometimes the later Elizabethan buildings, I find, have nice floor plans, but that's not so much for the early palaces. Too many extensions. There are quite a number of extensions, mostly Tudor extensions, mm. which actually have changed that. So that's, I think, part of the problem there. Yeah, but I will nevertheless, um, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, I will put a picture of uh, one of those kind of 18th century sketches. So you can see, I think, one of the earliest views of, mm. of what the palace would have looked like. Okay, so that's in the north courtyard. So maybe we should just, before we go inside, I'm teasing everybody, I keep saying before we go inside, maybe we should just have a wander through into the south, south courtyard. I, 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 that was a guess. <laughs> and just have a look at what we can see there.
So Janice, here we are, a completely different view and a rather charming, I have to say, kind of timber framed porch. Oh, I love that. That's so that's so cute. Anyway, what are we seeing here? You're seeing again another view of the banqueting hall from the 15th century, but next to it you have a lovely view of one of the great Tudor extensions. So you can see a room which is called Queen Elizabeth's room, um, which is an early extension, a Tudor extension, possibly sort of early 16th century in front of you, and next to it you're seeing the outside of the Tudor Long Gallery, the extension that was built. Now, it's, the wood has now been dated, so we can now date the wood that was used in that to 1538. Wood, as you know, was used always roughly as soon as it was cut. Mm. So that, again, you have a Tudor extension, a long gallery. And I can see the diapering pattern, those yes. lovely red bricks, the diapering pattern that just, mm. just tells you that that's what you're dealing with here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, windows, doors were put in by the 18th century archbishop. So you have some lovely 18th century windows and the brickwork was renovated then as well. Oh. Underneath the gallery, you have a series of rather nice rooms, which would have been originally for storage, but became quite charming rooms that were rented out when the palace was being used for industrial purposes. Mm. Uh, the black and white or oratory building at the end that you can see is in fact 19th century. Is it? You see, I just said that looks so charming and you've caught me out. Look, that's a, a 19th century. They did a good job with that, I have to say. Did you think they salvaged anything from the palace or do you think it was literally built with um, just brought materials brought in? We've got no evidence of reusing for that bit. We have evidence of reusing materials in other parts of the palace, uh, but not there. Not that bit. Okay, that's great. Right, so what are the different areas that you have inside that you'd like to go and show us and where might we go first, Janice? I think start with the Great Hall, which is where we always start our tours. Yes. Okay, the Great Hall sounds like a good place yes. to me. So, shall we go inside? Yes. Excellent. Well, wow, um, what can I say? We've come into the Great Hall and what a great hall it is. I had no idea that this existed. I, I'm, I'm grinning from ear to ear, of course. It's magnificent, isn't it? So Janice, maybe you could tell us about what we could see in here and because there are some fantastic architectural features, aren't there? There certainly are. This is the, the great hall of the manor, of the estate. It's not the original. There was one here in the 1390s, which we still have the entrance hall and possibly a door frame. This hall we are standing in was rebuilt in a roughly 1450 by Archbishop Stafford to welcome a visit from King Henry VI, who was in the area dealing with the aftermaths of a rising. And, and can I just say, you're just pointing towards a, a, a stone-carved coat of arms. I can see two angels holding up what looks to me like a royal coat of arms, surmounted by a crown. Who's 
Is, is that Henry VI, did you say? That is the coat of arms of Henry VI. Underneath it, you see the coat of arms of Archbishop Stafford, making sure he's kept in the picture. And around the lovely Great Hall, you will see a number of coat of arms of either royal visitors connected with Henry VI or indeed Archbishops of Canterbury. This is a classic Great Hall for entertaining, for a variety of public events. It's got a magnificent oak arch-braced roof supported by buttresses outside. It's got windows. The glass is not original, but the actual window frames are. The ones on the north, possibly from the 1390s, possibly the ones on the south from the, from the 1450s. And you've got the heraldry going around underneath those windows. Can you point out, because as you, you said, there are coats of arms uh, just sort of running around the, both the north and south walls between the windows. I can see lots of royal coats of arms. Can you point a couple out to us? And... We've got Ralph, Ralph Cromwell, treasurer to Henry VI. Ah, yes. We've got Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham. Now, the name Stafford suggests that he was related to Archbishop Stafford. He probably wasn't, mm. but it's worth putting up there. Uh, there's a fabulous coat of arms there, which probably belongs to Richard, Duke of York, or it may be Edward of Westminster. It, it's got the, the classic mark of the Prince of Wales. So, uh, uh. again, that one. But again, all linked with Henry VI. The other badges are all of the archbishops. So you will see the badge of Canterbury on one side and the family badge of the archbishops on the other. The badge over here is quite rare and quite famous because it's the wrong way round. You've got the badge of Stafford when he was Archbishop of Bath and Wells and his family badge. And again, it's inverted. So again, it has caused quite a bit of interest amongst the, the, the heraldry society. Do we know why? No. <laughs> there was lots of room for debate then on that point, I would imagine. Rather a joy to think about it, isn't it really? So, so. Oh, that's fantastic. So. Who do we know was received in this hall? You've talked already, I imagine, about Henry VI being here. Who else? All of the Tudor monarchs came here. Did they? Yes, we have evidence, I think, of all of the Tudors. Uh, later kings as well would, would visit. Charles I was here, I do know that. Uh, I think George III was here. Again, most monarchs would have popped in at some point. The, Arch the Archbishops of Canterbury were such important people that they, they were visited. And so there was, this would have been a welcoming place for many of the kings and queens. And they still visit. They still visit. Mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth's been here a couple of times. Princess Royal was the last one a couple of years ago. Wow, so yeah. it's got such a long history of royal patronage. But, you know, you were saying before, it's a summer palace, the Archbishop of Canterbury retreating here for the summer. Well, why wouldn't the Tudor monarch, who may well be passing through, because, of course, he had, uh, they had palaces. I don't, know, I don't know how close the likes of Woking Palace are, for example, but you can imagine them progressing around and coming for a little bit of hospitality uh, with their Archbishop. Is there anything else we need to know about this, about this glorious building, Janice? I think perhaps I could just mention that the wall in front of us, which is the east, is that the east, east wall there, uh, actually um, fell down. That is, a, that is been rebuilt because it fell down during the industrial decline and has been rebuilt. Ah, I see. So it so really was salvaged. This was, was a space salvaged. that was, was yes. salvaged. The, wall, the roof itself was damaged in the war. 
flying bombs, uh, but again has been repaired and renovated. <laughs> yeah, and you've got lovely, I notice, a fantastic door at the what I imagine is the high end of the wall. Yes. Um, so that would have gone, led into the, towards the Archbishop's maybe presence chamber and then on into his kind of private chambers, I imagine? Yes. Uh, one point to mention is that the palace would originally have been separate buildings um, and you got rather wet going from one to t'other. But gradually, often by the Tudors, they were joined up and built over. So you'd be going out here into what is now a stone hall, which originally would have been opened, and then into the Archbishop's retiring room. Retiring room. So is that where we need to go next? I think so. Okay, let's go. This delightful Jacobean staircase. You see, this would have, this stone hall would have been sort of built in. By lots of lovely creaky floorboards, which are fantastic. So we've left the Great Hall. We've come out through the doorway that we've just been talking about, the high end of the hall. Lovely carved, elaborate surrounds, up a flight of steps, and into where are we now? This is the guard room, a retiring room for the archbishops to take one step back from the public world of the Great Hall. The room that we're in at the moment slightly predates the Great Hall. It will go back to roughly um, sort of 1400 um, and it was built by Archbishop Arundel, Archbishop to Henry IV. Um, it's a, again a beautiful room, an oak, an oak ceiling with again resting on angel corbels holding up the, the ceiling with the heraldry of Archbishop Arundel up there as well. It's got a lovely oriel window which would have been very sunny before the extensions were built. This window was in fact rebuilt exactly, hopefully exactly as it was, in 1900-1910 by the Sisters of the Church who were so busy renovating the palace room by room. It is now the school library, so again, very much a, a beautiful building, a room that is used a lot. Yeah, so I, I'm imagining as this retiring room, this is where favoured guests would be brought and there would be chance to have private discussions, audiences, etc. with the Archbishop. Absolutely Away right. from the public glare of the, of the rest of the household. But it's like a mini Great Hall really, isn't it? Now, just to say that we can't have photos in this particular room for, for various reasons, so we're not going to be able to show those on the, on the um, show notes page, but it is very much, it's just like, it's like the Great Hall, but slightly in miniature, really, isn't it? So a very splendid room for a, for a retiring chamber. Yes, I think this is still a case of showing grandeur. Here, the Archbishop would have met important people. James I, the King of Scotland, was kept as a hostage in England for a long time and spent a short time here at the palace. Catherine of Aragon spent some time here while she was a young widow. So there would have been important people here in this room. Oh, that's very interesting. There'll be a lot of people who'll be very interested to know that, particularly that latter fact. And so again, I mean, knowing what I know of the normal flow of a building, we would be leaving this room en route and we'd be going deeper into the heart of the Archbishop's private lodgings. Absolutely. So where do we go? Come lead, with us. Lead on. Into a yeah, really fantastic, a, creaky floorboard. Yes, a real Tudor room now. Oh, is it? 
Look at the ceiling. Oh yes. <laughs> yes, I can see. So part, still part of the library today. We're surrounded by books, but you can see the room's got much smaller, hasn't it? Yes. This is an extension built by Archbishop Morton, the first Tudor Archbishop. Um, this is his dining room. So you've got a lovely Tudor ceiling. Yes, you do. You have a Tudor fireplace. Panelling a little later, possibly, we're not quite sure of the date, dating of the panelling, but certainly Morton could rela relax here and have his supper. So the first Tudor Archbishop. Uh, it's got a lovely, lovely uh, wall which leads onto church land and people are always interested in the fact that it's a very strange slope. Yes, the it's a very odd angle, isn't odd it? Angle. It's not a square room by any stretch of the imagination. The reason being, everybody who has builders will know about this, that Morton built right up to the boundary. That is the boundary with the church. And he made sure that he used every inch that he could. <laughs> so it was Morton. And indeed, it was Morton who also probably joined up the great hall with the guard room and this room so he wouldn't get wet. So basically, he built beautiful Tudor um, build rooms and linkways. Ah, I see. Now, I might be wrong here, but I've got... Is, was Archbishop Morton the guy who was responsible for a lot of building at Knoll? I'm trying to remember. I believe he did a lot of building everywhere. Oh. Lambeth as well. Okay, so, yes. so he was one of those very industrious archbishops yes. who certainly left his architectural fingerprints all over the place. Yes. Wonderful, fantastic. <laughs> so while we're pausing in here, I was just musing on how do we know who was here? What are the sources that you still have left that tell us about the history of this place? We are quite limited with original sources. There's a wonderful book in the 18th century written by the keeper of the library up at Lambeth, which really helps us. And using the papers of the stewards and the records and details of the palace. Um, the steward can be very, very useful. There's a wonderful comment by one of the stewards, I think in 1570s, when Elizabeth is deciding to come for a second time, having just been the year before. And you can almost hear the plaintiff cry in his voice saying, oh no, not again. I haven't got enough rooms for all the ladies in waitings. Please don't let them come again. No choice. If the queen's going to come, the queen's going to come. It's funny, we hear that story quite a lot as we go around. Different, different sort of owners of these great houses going, oh God, how can we dissuade her not to come? It's stories of the plague and of all sorts of things that people make up. Yeah. Oh, poor Elizabeth. Anyway, so where are those steward, stewards' um, records kept? Are they at Lambeth with the rest of the Archbishop's papers? I think, again, we are still researching, doing a lot of work here. I think a lot of information is at Lambeth. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. All right, so where do we go from here? We are now going to stay with Morton yes. because he also built the next link way. There's all sorts of doors, aren't they? Just sort of, I'm so excited, I don't know what's coming next. You've been listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is available to patrons only. To become a patron of the show, head over to my Podbean homepage and you can find the Become a Patron button in the top right-hand corner. Alternatively, you can find a direct link to Become a Patron in the text associated with this podcast. And 
And finally, just before I go, a quick reminder to say if you are interested in booking your place on this year's virtual summit, 500 Years of Anne Boleyn, it girl icon legend, then make sure that you hop on over to my blog www.thetudortravelguide and subscribe to my mailing list. I will be sending out a notification as soon as the doors open. First of all, it's a big thank you to all of you who bought tickets for this year's virtual annual summit. Of course, 500 Years of Anne Boleyn, It Girl Icon Legend, which is underway right now this weekend as this episode goes live. (laughs) 